Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show... We will be speaking with Beatrice Williams about her new book, Our Woman in Moscow, a gripping and profoundly human story of Cold War espionage, the choices people make, and their consequences. Beatrice is the best-selling author of 13 books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Summer Wives. She holds a bachelor's degree from Stanford University and an MBA from Columbia University. She lives in Connecticut with her husband and four children. Beatrice, welcome to That Said. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So the way I always like to start these interviews is to have our authors tell us about themselves, how they came to be where they are. So if you could follow that pattern, I'd sure appreciate it. Oh, gosh, that's that's a very open-ended question. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, I was born in uh, Seattle, Washington, to a British father and a Californian mother. Uh, and, uh, I kind of grew up in a, you know, classic suburban environment, uh, went to college on the West Coast, came to the East, uh, after college and, uh, sort of fell into a bit of a finance slash PR career, uh, financial PR. Uh, and, uh, it was certainly a great way to pay the bills, but I always did want to write books and, Eventually, uh, detours through uh, London and then back to Connecticut again. Uh, and uh, four kids later, I did finally manage to make that uh, dream a reality. Uh, historical fiction was always uh, my thing. History was always my passion. And uh, so the right idea finally came to me at the right time when I had the uh, the skills to turn it into the story that I wanted it to be. And, uh, and then I've just kept on writing since. So were you working and then decided that you had this wonderful idea that you were going to try to make a book? And so you were doing them at the same time, or did you say, thank you, career, it's been swell, and then <laughs> turn into a writer? Well, the, the diversion was really through motherhood. I, um, I had, I, and I went and I did everything. I got my MBA in finance and did the whole thing, uh, and ended up, uh, in management consulting. I was in, uh, in the London office. My husband was, was working in banking. It was just the, the your classic expat, you know, couple. And, uh, I, but I did not love what I did. And I would say my husband did not love what he did either. I think we were both, uh, sort of channeled by the expectations of those around us uh, into these careers that we didn't necessarily uh, gain much joy from. Uh, and I was the lucky one who had the babies. So I was like, oh, maternity leave, fantastic. And then one baby turned into two babies, turned into four. Uh, so I was sort of on permanent maternity leave and uh, realized I in my heart had no real intention of returning to management consulting. And, uh, and that was kind of what gave me the freedom to write because I think that writing 
is something as my father, who is British, grew up, uh, well, he was actually born in India. That's a whole long family backstory there, but, uh, but grew up in, in uh, outside London in the post-war years of rationing and, uh, trudging, uh, up you know, uphill both ways through the snow uh, to school every day, uh, the the grand British tradition. And he would he would tell me and he was very encouraging, but he would still caution me with things like many are called, few are chosen, you know, and, and things like that, that, you know, you know, I think as a writer, you you know, you're going to go into something that uh, you are very likely to fail at. I mean, you know, they're, they're the, it's not, I think going into something like consulting investment banking is something that if you work really hard, uh, you know, do your work and conscientious, all that, you're going to succeed. Uh, writing, you could work really, really hard. You, you can certainly, uh, you can certainly, you know, succeed, uh, while working hard, but you, you cannot, you cannot succeed without working hard, but you can certainly not succeed. You can fail while still working very, very hard. And so there's, there's that talent element that I thought, gosh, am I, you know, do I have that talent? Can I do this? You know, and, and what if, you know, my teachers and friends were all just being really nice, like the, you know, like those American Idol, you know, you know, contestants who, uh, they're auditioning and everyone says what a great singer they are and they open their mouths and they can't sing a note. So I, I was just scared. I was like kind of the writer version of that. And, uh, it was only through really polished working really, really hard at polishing those skills and understanding what goes into writing a good book, uh, that, uh, I sort of built that confidence, but also had the confidence of having these kids who, uh, who needed and loved me. So even if I crashed and burned at this writing thing, uh, you know, I suddenly had this other thing that was also very, very important and very dear to my heart. So it, the stakes were no longer as high, uh, ego wise, uh, for me. And that gave me the freedom to go ahead and try and to, to make the leap. My, my son is in filmmaking in California and he won an award when he was in high school and uh-huh. an actor from the love boat series, I think it was oh my presented, presented the award. I, uh-huh. I don't know if the actor had acted since the love boat ended <laughs> 30 years previous. That's a good, and, where are they now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he said to the, to the student prize winners, he said, let me tell you, if the word no bothers you, get out of this business right now, because you can hear no, Many more times than you're going to hear yes. And I think that's what you just sort of said, that you have to expect that you may hear no many, many more times before you'll hear yes. Yeah. And not only that, yes is not the final answer. You know, you put a book out and there are plenty of people, obviously completely nuts, uh, but there are plenty of people who aren't going to like your book. uh, And you just have to accept that, you know, and just focus on the people who love your book and who love what you're trying to accomplish. So, uh, you know, you, you, you have to have that thick skin. You have to understand that you're never going to have complete success in this. Well, yeah, it's probably true of life in general, of, of any field, but you're never going to sort of feel like you've reached that pinnacle because there's always going to people who hate your book and the horse it rode in on. And you just have to, you just have to be okay with that. And I think that's why we have so many, you know, this tradition of the, the alcoholic depressive artist is because it is very hard to deal with. You know, you have to have a lot of support from, from family. You have to have that core of belief in yourself. 
um, that will sustain you through a lot of negativity that gets thrown your way. Yeah, I always think of the author of um, A Confederacy of Dunces, who who um, couldn't get his book published and uh, committed suicide. And his mother, you know, sort of as an act of love for the son, sent it to, I think, Langston Hughes and said, can you please read my son's book so I can get some, you know, closure on this. Tell me whether, you know, he killed himself. In the, and, of course, the book goes on to become the Pulitzer Prize winner. Yeah. Um, but the poor author has taken his life because he couldn't take the... The, the slings and arrows. It's Yeah, it is yeah. tough. And I, there's sometimes a sense that, well, nobody's getting what I'm saying, you know. And, uh, you, yeah, you have to really, you have to be able to deal with that and to, uh, you know, to just kind of go back to what you are trying to accomplish in your writing and to say, okay, you know, if if five readers love it, then I have, you know, you have to find your measure of success in that. So tell us about your writing process. I, I think I read a quote by George R. R. Martin, the Game of Thrones author, and he divided writers into uh, architects and planners. Uh, I mean, architects and gardeners. Architects yeah. are yellow post-its all over the room with the arc all laid out before word one is written, and the gardeners just start writing and see where it goes. Right. Uh I, I find that interesting. Yeah, I'm kind of in between, and I think there's in in I, I've heard it described as plotters and pantsers, as in you're you're writing by the seat of your pants. Um, and it's interesting gardening, and and because of course you know you also have to plan out a garden as well. You know, it's so that it's a, it's an interesting analogy, and I think I, I fall somewhere between them. As uh, you know, the second child, you know tends to like to make these compromises. But my interest, I, I love the architect analogy because I do feel as if I am an architect when I'm creating a book. Uh, my father is an engineer and I think I have inherited a lot of that kind of mapping uh, ability in my head, uh, which is why I end up writing these often very complex plots. But to me, how the story is built is vital but it's not necessarily the first thing that I do. It's more like, what is the house that I am building? And who are the people who are inhabiting this house? Uh, and, and so to me, the architecture is, comes out of that process. So I'm not thinking about architecture until I already know what I'm building and who's going to be inhabiting it and for which purpose. But that being said, once I have that down, I am absolutely meticulous about creating a structure around this book, uh, this a frame that holds up the story. And as my father likes to say, if I've done my job, no one will notice uh, everything that has gone into this frame. It'll be invisible, but it will hold the whole thing up. And, and that's kind of what I try to do, but it's not as if, you know, it, it's, it, I, so I would say I'm probably more like an architect, but I don't get around to that part of it until I have a very clear idea of what it is I'm trying to build and for whom. One thing I wanted to ask is in writing historical fiction, when do you start and stop your research? Is it, is it an ongoing process? Have you started writing and you say, Oh, I need to know a little bit more about what was happening in the McCarthy house on American affairs committee. Then you research and then that has to take you back to a, an earlier point and then you have to rewrite how how do you 
when do you do your research, your historical research that gets then melded into the fiction or do you write your fiction and then look for your research? How do, how do you deal with the research part of it? So the research is ongoing. Uh, it is absolutely a continuous process. And it starts long before the book is even conceived because what happens is that the idea for the book comes out of the research. So I will be researching something else, maybe for a previous book. Uh, maybe it's something that I researched many, many years ago, but something in that research really stuck in my head. And at some point I'll go back and I'll read something more about it. And that'll take me in a certain direction. I mean, it, it, part of it depends on what is the trigger of the book. And it's usually a person or a situation. Uh, and I have yet to write a book that is what you might call a fictionalized biography, which is to say you take a real figure and you fictionalize that person's life, but it is still that person. I don't do that because m my imagination tends to get the better of me. And the things that I want to say are sometimes very hard to say when you have to, out of respect for the person you're writing the book about, stick to the facts. And, uh, and so m my process tends to be a lot more organic. Uh, so, you know, I first got the idea, for example, if we were going to bring it down to, to concrete details here, I first got the idea for our woman in Moscow when I was reading something else and stumbled across the story of the Cambridge spies. And I am constantly coming across ideas that I think would make great books. In fact, my two dearest writing friends and I have a text chat where we often send each other news stories and are like, dibs, you know, uh, or, or historical things we've noticed and say, dibs, you know. And uh, so there's constantly this flow of ideas going through my head. And what finally turns that into maybe this needs to be my next book is this sense of this is a a story or a moment in history or a historical episode that is particularly suited to what I want to do as a writer and what I have the skills to do uh, as a writer. So what made uh, the Cambridge spy story something that I thought would make a good Beatrice book uh, was uh, number one, you have, uh, you have these young men who are, passionate about a particular idea and this leads them to extremes and not just the sort of cloak and dagger aspect of it which was really the least interesting aspect to me uh, but the psychological aspect why are they doing this what sustains them in this through you know we we start in the 30s right and we go to the early 50s and by the early 50s it is very hard to deny what is actually happening in the soviet union i mean stalin does a pretty good job of pulling the wool over people's eyes certainly if they want to have the wool pulled over them uh you know it through the sort of the the earlier years by the time we get to the early 50s we are pretty aware of the atrocities that have taken in place in this regime. So what sustains them through all this? Number one. Number two, what does it do to them psychologically? All of them sort of turn to alcohol and other substances. They all have very troubled marriages. Their relationships uh, with their friends and family are very difficult. And it all comes down to you know, in British culture, you have this, you know, and, and I say, it, I say it's literally unthinkable. I, I, I mean that in the real sense. I don't mean literally like we throw the word literary, liter literally around. Like I'm literally starving when you mean I'm, I'm just very hungry. You're not 
but this was literally unthinkable. People couldn't think or conceive that these men who are brought up in the tradition of British duty and honor and loyalty, not just to your country, but to your friends. You know, this is an essential part of your nature that honor will not allow you to deceive uh, uh, people who uh, who feel, who, who trust you. So it's unthinkable. And in fact, right until the end, and it, it is the FBI and this decryption operation that uh, unmasks the first of them. And at that point, the British are like, no way, Donald McLean, he's, he's one of us. You know, it's got to be some Clark, you know, down in the cipher room or something. And of course it is him. And, and Kim Philby, I mean, not our Kim, you know, can't be. Uh, and of course it is. And, 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 and so what is this doing to them? This level of deception. And I think Donald McLean is the guy who really suffered most because he was probably the most idealistic of all of them. Uh, and he truly suffered. And as we see in his, you know, journey through absolute, you know, near, you know, near, near bottom uh, alcoholism and his the breakup of his marriage, uh, they break up and reconcile quite a bit. All these things are happening. So I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. And then I, I more I explore Donald McLean, the more I'm like, oh gosh, this, this marriage he's got, you know, my God, there's so much going on here. So all of these things are thinking, you know, this, this is a story about human beings against a political backdrop. And to me, that made it irresistible as, uh, you know, as, as a possible framework for this fictional story that I wanted to write. So uh, I do, like I said, I do not want to write uh, something that is, you know, Donald McLean's story, Melinda McLean's story. So what I did was I reimagined it as, well, what if uh, you know, these spy masters, these NKVD guys, uh, in, you know, in, in America, uh, had gone out and recruited young men from the elite universities who have communist leanings, as many of them did in the 1930s. And what if they had recruited American men and infiltrated, well, they did to a certain extent, but as a systematic, you know, going up to the very top, the sort of Harvards and Princetons and Yales, and got these young men as moles who went to the really the very top, as they did in the UK. Uh, Kim Philby was, you know, he was head of, you know, Soviet counterintelligence at, at, at MI6. I mean, he was the guy responsible for hunting down Soviet moles, and he was the Soviet mole. So... You know, I thought, well, what if we had done, what if that had happened in America and what would that look like? Yeah. So just as a background bit for our um, listeners, because you jumped right into it. The, <laughs> the, the, I have a uh, habit of that. No, it's a good habit, I think. But the Cambridge Five, as as they're known, sometimes they're known as the Cambridge Spies, but the Cambridge Five were these five men who held these highest position in the British foreign office mm -hmm. starting in about the thirties and running until about the fifties when yeah. three of them defected to, to, to Moscow mm -hmm. um, were spies for the Soviet union for, for 20 plus years. And mm -hmm. they, while holding the highest levels of, of office in the foreign service, they, they all, I think came out of Cambridge what you were saying is not our Kim, not our Donald, was that Cambridge men, if you will, just didn't do that. The British honor and all that sort of stuff. And and so when it became revealed, like Alger Hiss or somebody here, mm -hmm. it was almost, as you said, impossible to believe. 
And it's in that setting that you bring your characters, your fictional characters um, to life. And so it's a, it is a great backdrop and you have some wonderful uh, characters. So you always worry in interviews like this of not to spoil the plot because that would be horrible. But um, tell us, if you will, about um, Iris, Iris, Iris and Ruth um, Digby, the, the, the twin sisters who for the, the book is written um, through the point of view of three of your characters, Iris, Ruth and Lute Mila. So tell us, maybe you can tell us about each of of the three and I'll back and forth you with a little bit of detail about the interesting parts of their lives that at least were interesting to me. Yes. So um, as with uh, most uh, of my books, I tend to look at something like the Cambridge spy ring. And, and the reason why actually it was originally known as the Cambridge spy ring, because they didn't know how many were in it. It wasn't, and then we're still not sure that it was actually five. There may have been more, but uh, of course now the archives in, uh, in Russia, the K- old KGB archives are closed again. They were open for a very short period of time. Uh, so those are the five kind of we know about. And, uh, and, and there were other spies, certainly. Uh, if you look at George Blake, who did enormous damage, he was, uh, in the um, uh, MI6 station in Berlin uh, and did enormous damage. Uh, so, but when I, whenever I'm looking at this, and obviously the story of these men is compelling enough, certainly, but it's, it had also been very well covered uh, in spy fiction, in nonfiction, certainly in, in Britain. Uh, you know, John Le Carre used, uh, you know, used parts of it for Tinker Taylor's Elder Spy. And, 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 and it, not only that, but it, forms what you might call uh, the background of almost any Cold War spy novel is aware that this happened. And the fact that the guy at the top could have been a Soviet spy is something that runs like a current through almost all the Cold War spy fiction that is out there. But that, so that's, that's already been done. That's very well covered. So my, my take on this is, well, what are the women doing? Because, in fact, we don't know a lot about what the women are doing. John Le Carre, bless him, he is obviously, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the, the king of, of the Cold War spy thriller. He is the first to admit that, you know, writing about women was not his, his strong point. And uh, there isn't a lot about, well, what are the women doing? What are the women thinking? So that's always my starting point. So I'm thinking about Melinda McLean and the journey that she is going on. Here's the little nugget of information. Wait, can I just interrupt you one second? Yes. Donald McLean is one of the British spies yes. in real life. He's in the, yes, he was in the foreign office. Right, foreign so office. Still in my research, yeah. He was, so Ex- he was a high flyer in the, the diplomatic service. That's right. And um, Melinda was his wife. So I just wanted to be, again, so people. Wife. Right, and this right. is what it, this is what is fascinating to me. So, I mean, this is, I'm still doing the research, still trying to figure out how I'm going to approach, uh, my Cold War spy novel. Uh, and I noticed that Melinda McLean, first of all, she's American. Uh, she is in, for some reason, she is in Paris after the start of World War II, but before Germany actually invades France, where Donald McLean is, is in Paris and he's working in the, um, uh, in the British embassy there. And they meet and he's very attracted to her. She thinks he is this boring British diplomat. So what does he tell her? 
he tells her, well, I'm not really such a boring British diplomat. In fact, I am a spy for the Soviet Union. And it has exactly the intended effect. She jumps straight into bed with him and mission accomplished. Uh, and then she gets pregnant. They get married right as, the, you know, the German troops are about to march down the Champs-Élysées and, and they flee just in time. And And it's very dramatic. And I thought, you know, the fact that she knew what was going on all along to me is very interesting because it means she's not just as she sort of, uh, you know, when, when McLean does actually defect in, uh, in 1951, he defects with Guy Burgess, who's another one of the spies, but he does not go with her. And her line is, oh, you know, he just disappeared. I don't know what happened. And, oh, my, my, the father of my children would never be a traitor to his country. And then, of course, two years later, she defects as well with her children. So I thought there is so much going on here. The fact that she knows about this and all this time, what is she doing? Is she opposed to what he's doing, but she loves him, so she's supporting him? Is she enabling what's going on? And it's very difficult to discover this because we don't have as nearly as much information on Melinda as Donald. So that, of course, to me, opens up all kinds of avenues of, of imagination. And that is where the, 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 the character of Iris Digby began as the wife of a man who turns out to be, in fact, a Soviet spy working within uh, the U.S. diplomatic service. So, uh, uh, Iris has her story and, and, uh, and I knew that at some point, I think what was missing for me with, with Melinda and what I sort of wanted to create in my own story about this was, does Melinda, and I don't think she does from the available evidence, does she ever have a moment where, uh, a moment of reckoning where she says, gosh, this, though it had the best of intentions, turned out to be a bad thing to do. People died. Maybe I was on the wrong side after all. And, and does she ever, she does not have that moment of reckoning. I wanted someone to have, I wanted a wife of one of these spies to have that moment of reckoning. So I built this character of Iris uh, to go through this and then have a moment of reckoning. And then, of course, I needed to have this drama of, you know, where we pick up the pace with the spy thriller aspect. Who's going to go to Moscow to rescue her from her predicament? And that, of course, uh, has got to be her sister, Iris, uh, her twin sister from whom she, uh, sorry, her twin sister, Ruth, Iris's twin sister, Ruth, from whom she has been estranged all these years from the moment when she married uh, this young man, Iris Digby. Uh, so it is a story of all these various betrayals and everyone in the book at some point betrays someone else in the book uh, and how you come to terms with that betrayal and how you find some kind of redemption for having betrayed somebody else. So that's kind of what the book is about. That is the journey these two sisters go on at a personal level, but there are many different layers to these betrayals that are going on. And again, we cannot get too much into all the spoilers. Uh, the third character, of course, Ludmilla is our KGB official who is in charge of hunting down uh, a, a mole uh, in the Soviet Union who is passing on information to uh, to the Americans. And so she uh, is is tracking down uh, and she thinks she's narrowed it down to these defectors who have come to the Soviet Union after their spying careers uh, have been unmasked uh, in the West. So she's my cat, 
Iris and Ruth and Iris's husband are kind of my mice. And, uh, and that is sort of the chase that takes place. Right. And, um, they, they're, they're wonderful characters. I, I, I know from, uh, your resume besides, uh, being the manager of the Stanford football <laughs> team while you were there, a true, a true fact. True story. Yes. You, were, <laughs> you, you were an anthropology major, which is a perfect major for the study of, uh, of human, oh, human um, beings. Yeah. And, and so these are very rich, uh, mm-hmm. characters. Uh, mm-hmm. Ruth, when I, when you first introduce us to Ruth, I'm thinking, you know, who, who is this? Is this Ingrid Bergman? Is this Catherine Hepburn? Is it Lauren Bacall? Is it Olivia de Havilland? You know, she's <laughs> this very cinematic, um, constantly smoking cigarette, sort of tough talking 19, I know you were a student of film, not sort of like 1940s, 1950s, late uh-huh. 1930s, film noir sort of woman. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, which yes. I, which I, I, I liked. Did, did you, did you think of these old movies in, in crafting the character of Ruth? Cause she comes out of sort of whole cloth. Iris sort of has a resemblance to Melinda McLean, a real life person, mm-hmm. but, I, but Ruth is of your, of whole cloth. Just kind of walk out this. So I do love to create juxtapositions with my characters. And I think that sisters in particular, because we are asked to take on roles in the family. I have a sister of my own. Uh, and, and so we tend to become the role that is laid out for us. And, uh, and so I love that aspect of sisterhood where there is this incredible bond, uh, that connects them. And yet, uh, they also frequently are juxtaposed against each other. Well, this is the smart one and this is the pretty one. Well, this is the adventurous one and this is the bookish one. And, and so I love to play around with that because I think, uh, by, um, by setting characters up as a certain type, uh, I then can add in these layers that by the end of the book, we start to see that it, it maybe it isn't so. Uh, maybe there's a lot more uh, to these roles uh, and to the people underneath that surface than we have realized. The genesis of Ruth, I do love that kind of character. Uh, and that kind of character does that, you know, because I, I do love old movies. One of the great things about where I went to college was that we had a wonderful old movie palace uh, right in town. And because it was a nonprofit, I could, you know, spend $5 and watch a double feature and uh, and blow off my studying for the day. And I did that probably more often than I should. And yet the great thing is, it turned out to be exactly the right thing to do for the career that I ended up pursuing. So, uh, you know, there you go. There's, there's part of your education right there. So I, I did sort of, and, and I think the idea is not sort of any particular, you know, film star, but the idea of women, and this is where I go back to my own grandmother, who's my, my father's mother. She's British, but she actually grew up in Kobe, Japan, ended up in Calcutta where she met my grandfather, uh, and then spent the next, you know, 20 years after World War II in sort of dreary uh, post-war London, uh, where everyone else just wanted life to get back to normal. She was not 
an outgoing person. She's very much a quiet person, but she was very quietly revolutionary. And she used to say to me that the 20s and 30s were a wonderful time to be a woman. She says, and the 50s came and it's as if we fell asleep, she said. So she really hated being around these women who had gone through the war and, of course, the depression before it and just wanted things to get back to normal and to have babies and have this normal life. And she wanted, she still wanted adventure and, and craved that intellectual stimulation. And, but, you know, I, I, I always, that, that's always in the back of my mind when I'm writing about that pre-war era is women are coming into their own and they're making a lot of mistakes, but they're finally allowed to make them. Uh, they're going out in the world and doing all these things and having these adventures and, and they're allowed to do this and whether they're adventurous or not, or whether they're, uh, you know, beautiful or not, or talented or not, they're all out there, they're doing their thing. Uh, and, and, and yet still holding on to this idea of themselves as, 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 as women, which I think is amazing that they're still, they're not, you know, uh, it's not that they're necessarily saying, oh, I want to be a banker. I, I feel like I need to have these opportunities that are traditionally male dominated. It's more like they're just saying, I want to get out there and fly airplanes. You know, it just looks like fun to me or race cars or go off traveling, all these things. And, and they're, they're, they're doing that while still holding on to a very strong idea of themselves as women. And I love that. And I love that about those women. So when I'm thinking, I'm not necessarily thinking of it in cinematic terms. I'm thinking about my grandmother and I'm thinking about her contemporaries and I'm thinking about, you know, yes, this idea that, that we see depicted in the film of the era of women going out there and doing fun, exciting things uh, that previously in a previous generation, they would not have had the opportunity to do or even to think about doing. And um both characters nicely evolve and in surprising ways. <laughs> I, Iris, you have her dad, I think, referred to her early on in the book as poor little Iris. And she <laughs> turns out to be anything but poor little Iris. And Ruth is this magnetic, cinematic woman who just is described as, describes herself as just a mortal woman doing her best with what's entrusted to her care just a bit of an understatement of, of <laughs> how, how, how she turns out. But besides those, those two um, uh, Western sisters, you've got Ludmilla, who is a very interesting character. She is a, a survivor, um, most uh, foremostly. So tell us a little about, fill her out a little bit, because I find her to be a really interesting, complicated, psychologically. Yes speaking character i absolutely she you know it's funny of all the characters in the book she gave me the least trouble uh partly because by the time i realized i was going to include her as a viewpoint character i was already well into the book uh i wrote uh, iris's story first i needed to know what her arc was and where kind of she ended up you know by the time she got to moscow and then i once i sort of filled that in, you know, and wrote that part. Uh, then I wrote about Ruth and Ruth going to rescue her sister from Moscow. And I'm about halfway through when I realized that there is actually somebody there in the KGB who is responsible for all this. 
and who is chasing them down, who's the, the, the source of the danger. And I realized I needed to get into her head a little, partly because at that point I had gained through my research quite a bit of knowledge about how the KGB worked, what was going on in the Soviet Union in the 30s and 40s and, and even into the early 50s. And what I realized uh, was that anyone who had gone through that and was still alive uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure if we're fully aware in the West of just uh, what a purge occurred in the Soviet Union among uh, the, 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 the moment when the revolution really ate its own uh, in the late 30s, when the great purge takes place. You know, and I think I heard the statistic, you know, like 90 percent of the uh, and this is why, you know, in the very beginning, the Soviet Union had a very tough time once once Hitler invaded was so 90 percent of the officers in the Red Army had been purged. Stalin was absolutely paranoid at this point, uh, was paranoid of dissent, was paranoid of his his position. So people, and you get into this moment where there's this frenzy of denunciation. You're denouncing your parents. Uh, you're denouncing your spouse, your children, your best friend, your colleague at work. Nobody is safe. So this atmosphere of paranoia, you know, permeates everything that is going on at, at that sort of, I guess, managerial level of uh, you know, of, of Soviet society. So by the time Ludmilla, who is in, uh, you know, is in, forges a career in the KGB. Well, it's the NKVD before the war. And I, it goes through so many name changes for, for convenience. I call it the NKVD before the war. And after the war, we call it the KGB just to simplify things. Uh, but at that point, after the war, uh, she's really undergoing a form of PTSD. I mean, she's traumatized. I can't imagine a human being not, who's not a total psychopath, not being completely traumatized by what has occurred and what you have survived over the past 20 years. Indeed, didn't, didn't her father and two brothers in the book yes. get sent away? Exactly. Sent away. And, and this was not uncommon. I mean, it, you know, if you're sort of in that, that intelligentsia class, you know, everybody is, is suspect. Uh, and it's, um, you know, it, it's, it, it, it is a, it is a moment in history that I think, you know, if we look at something, you know, like, uh, you know, and, and we spoke, uh, you know, we touched a bit on, you know, McCarthyism and the trials and obviously, you know, we go through our own period of denouncing people for their beliefs. But in this case, it is everybody who is at risk here. And, uh, it doesn't, it, there is no real trial process in the sense, you know, it's not getting blackballed or, you know, possible prison, it's death. I mean, or the gulag, which is essentially death or just literal execution. The stakes are just so much higher here and nobody ever comes to their senses. You know, there's not a point where anybody says, you know, to bury it. Well, I mean, he en ends up dead, but that's after the death of Stalin. But, you know, there's no point where somebody says, you've gone too far. This is enough. You know, that just doesn't happen in the Soviet Union because then you'll die. So, you know, the, the, the scale of what is going on there is very difficult for us to imagine in our, our Western liberal democracy. And uh, but it is pro has profound psychological effects on the people who experience it. 
So Lyudmila is a survivor of that. Uh, she is doctrinaire because she has to be, because to admit a kernel of doubt uh, is to essentially do away with her entire life, to say that all this time I have been evil because I've been perpetuating this, these evil things. So if she allows herself to doubt even for a second that she's doing the right thing, then she has nothing left. She has nothing to believe in. Uh, so, you know, she's going through that process as she is, you know, pursuing this traitor uh, within the Soviet Union. Uh, and then, of course, uh, because this is is fiction and because uh, fiction has a way of, uh, you know, teasing out uh what is our weakness uh and 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 to discover those things uh inside us uh that are uh in conflict with what we are actually doing uh in our lives uh so we have Ludmila I gave Ludmila a daughter she has a single daughter and this young woman is the one thing that she shouldn't be which is uh a dissenter uh, the one thing that Ludmilla cannot have in her life is somebody who dissents from uh, what Ludmilla believes uh, and what the Soviet Union believes. Uh, so she uh, also, uh, in the end of the book, is forced to make a very difficult choice between what she believes uh, and what she loves. Yeah. You you say of Ludmilla, she has two rules. Do not attract attention to yourself mm-hmm. and trust nobody. Yes. Which is which is perfect. So the book is written chapter by chapter through the point of view of Ruth and Iris Digby and Ludmilla. We we flip among those chapters and you've described how you wrote Iris first, essentially layered on Ruth and then layered yeah. in Ludmilla. But Iris's husband, Sasha Digby, yes. um, obviously features um, prominently. He's the, 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 the Donald McLean, if yes. you know, of, mm-hmm. of, of your book, the, the uh, American foreign service officer who uh, decides to um, become a become a spy so t- tell us a little about sasha so sasha is a very complicated, very complicated character we don't we don't have a chapter through his voice we never get to really hear to, at, the, at the very end we do uh there's one chapter that is in sasha's voice uh at the very end and and i did that deliberately because uh i i you sort of not telling this have you having sasha seen only through female eyes right up until the end uh, and that's partly turning the tables because for the most part, uh, you know, I think the women in the real life story, the Cambridge Spice story, tend to be seen through male eyes. And and so I wanted to turn those tables a bit and have my Cambridge Spy be seen through the eyes of a woman. And uh, Sasha is indeed a very complex guy. I, I loosely modeled him on Donald McLean. And certainly there's a few incidents in uh, in the book that, uh, uh, that are taken from real life. Uh, there's a, 
a sailing picnic expedition by boat to the Isle of Wight that is loosely inspired by a similarly disastrous picnic expedition on the Nile uh, when Donald McLean is posted to uh, to Cairo. So uh, I I did use him as a model because I found him... uh, so interesting from a psychological standpoint, because he is the most ideologically pure, if you will, of the Cambridge spies. You could argue that Kim Philby, his communism was almost an excuse for just him trying to stick it to this establishment that he secretly hated. And uh, and, and and just the ego trip he got from pulling the wool over the eyes of 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 these people. Uh, who he was supposed to be very good friends with. Uh, you know, Guy Burgess was, uh, you know, there was this very amoral streak to Guy. You know, he's, uh, you know, I, I kind of love the guy in a way because he literally, you know, is, is, is pretty unprincipled, uh, throughout his, his career and, uh, you know, had these, uh, you know, just completely seedy personal habits. You know, he was just, never cleaned his clothes he was you know but he was fascinating nonetheless he's got this very magnetic personality but he also is partly doing it for the money he needs money you know he gets the most money of all the cambridge spies uh but uh donald mclean was interesting because he's so tortured about what he's doing uh and he truly believes in in communism he is absolutely convinced that this is the way forward uh and no evidence to the contrary is going to convince him that he's wrong about this uh and he finds his purpose and his sense of usefulness in life through the fact that he is doing this he wants to be useful he is their most productive spy he's desperate to please and you can apply, you know, whatever psychology you want to that. So I found that incredibly fascinating, just his, his desperate desire to, to be needed. And, uh, and we see this throughout his relationship, certainly with Iris. Uh, and we see this in his breakdown as, you know, he, there, you know, there is a period for the Cambridge spies as well as for my fictional spies, uh, when the Soviet Union breaks off contact because they realize that some spies are getting unmasked and they do not want to endanger their other spies on the ground or their current spies by, you know, having contact. At this point, McLean, as well as my own Sasha Digby, truly breaks down. Uh, and the alcoholism, the infidelity, all these things are happening. Uh, and, and, and to see the way without this purpose in his life, uh, Sasha disintegrates. Uh, I think shed such a light into the reasons why these guys are spying. You know, it is, it is, in order for them to go against all these years of training about loyalty and duty and so on, for them to break that sacred bond, if you will, uh, requires a very, very powerful motivation. And if that sense of purpose and motivation, and I am doing something for the better good, if that's taken away, they've got nothing left. You know, they're, they're truly, uh, you know, they they just truly break down into these, you know, terrible constituent parts and ruin the lives of all around them as well. So that's one of the reasons why the Soviets pull McLean out and Burgess kind of goes along for the ride is because 
they're scared that he is going to get arrested and spill like all the beans because he clearly has, you know, no, you know, no more fortitude left. So they pull him out before he can do any more damage. Yeah. And, and Sasha, Sasha sort of tracks this little, a little bit of that his, his parents' marriage dissolves. Mm-hmm. You know, he sort of blames it on capitalism in some sense. He says they started out as, what started out as jealousy turned into something monstrous, a pile of spent ashes. Mm-hmm. And while he's while they're together and he's traveling, he sees sort of the divide between rich rich and poor, and he and he really can't process it. Um, you know, in in the sense of equal justice, there's just something which leads him to say. I think at one point, I'll read it to you. It's your your words. He says. Um, in sort of defending what he's doing, he says, capitalism's a shambles, miseries everywhere. That's obvious to anyone who thinks. And none of your capitalist so-called democracies gave a damn about Hitler. Who gave into Germany at Munich? Not the Soviets. Mm-hmm. So he has a way of, notwithstanding the Molotov uh, agreement, the non-aggression pact yeah. later between Stalin and, mm-hmm. and, and um, Hitler, he says what I'm doing is, is noble and just and right. Um, and he needs to believe in that. Yeah. He certainly has a critique. Uh, he's, he's anti-bourgeois, which is sort of the starting point for any sort of communist, uh, belief is that, you know, that there's a hollowness to this pursuit of individual wealth. There's a selfishness and a hollowness to it. Uh, and, and, and so you turn to communism because, oh, there is this solidarity and we share and, and it's not, it's, 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 it's true and it's real and it's, it's not this sort of sham that bourgeois life is. And so that is sort of the, the starting point that, that sort of sets him on, on this path. And, yeah. you know, his, it's, it's, you know, it, it is easy, you know, you don't, let's not forget that we're talking about the 1930s when capitalism was, you know, clearly in a bit of a shambles. And, you know, you, you layer that on, on that, the sort of cultural nihilism that you get out of, you know, the First World War and then the, the 1920s. Uh, and you come to the 1930s and you have a generation of young people absolutely ripe for belief in a different system and a system that is more just and fair and so on, or, or seems to be purports to be. And that is, you know, the true genius of capitalism is, is that it presents itself as something that is very just and very, uh, uh, you know, it is very truthful when it is in fact, you know, the opposite. You introduce um, part two of the book with a quote from Kim Philby, one of the actual yeah. British spies. And he says, I am really two people. I am a private person and a political person. Of course, there is a conflict. If, of course, if there is a conflict, the political person comes first. So he, that's, 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 that's uh, a true quote. I mean, that's what Philby mm-hmm. said. Um, and that's how he lived his life. Your, your character of Sasha, it's not so clear that he's going to live that life. Yes. Well, that's, I mean, Kim Philby uh, is, he's certainly bothered by what he's doing, but a lot less bothered than, uh, he's the one who kind of bucks everybody up, actually, Kim. And uh, there are so many sort of Kim Philby stories, it's like hard to know where to, I mean, just the brazenness of what he did. I mean, he was, he was the, 
uh, uh, MI6 liaison in Washington. So he was meeting weekly with, uh, you know, Jim uh, Appleton, the, the head of the um, of the CIA, like every week, you know, and uh, and and they're exchanging all these confidences and all this time, you know, this information is going straight back to the Soviet Union. So. Kim Philby was just unbelievably brazen and, uh, and, and he, he really believed that, you know, and I think to him it, and, and, um, uh, uh, you know, there, there's this, there was another quote that I didn't put in, which was, uh, which was Fuchs, the, um, uh, the, the atomic scientist who was a spy, who, who sent a lot of the atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. And, and he said that it requires a certain amount of schizophrenia, uh, to do this, to, to sort of be this diligent, loyal scientist working on, you know, the atomic, uh, you know, atomic issues and then to turn around and hand that off to, uh, you know, to, to Stalin. And he said it requires a certain schizophrenia. And, and I think, Kim Philby's quote kind of a little bit says the same thing in just a different way. Uh, in other words, I mean, the, the fact that you can be this public person versus, you know, private person, uh, and that for Kim, you know, that that political side wins. He's never going to put his friends and family first. Uh, he will always choose, uh, will always choose the political system that he believes in. And, you could argue that makes him the truest communist because that is in fact what communism demands is that the state comes before the personal relationships. The, the book is so interesting in that it is really about morality mm-hmm. and choices and the consequences of those choices and efforts to re- at redemption. I mean, that's, I think the, the, the heart of the book. And we just read that Philby quote just so for the would-be reader who should absolutely read this book, you introduced that quote in part two and in part three to set up the the conflict so well. You you have this quote by E.M. Forster, mm-hmm. and it says, if I had to choose between betraying my country and betraying my friend, I hope I should have the courage to betray my country. <laughs> I know. I, that's right? And so that's I, like the dead opposite of, 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 of Philby. Yeah. And that's what you've got throughout the book, that that tension between the choices that we make. You know, I was sort of raised, and this is not to sort of, I, I, I had no choice in the matter. You know, I, I, in the summer, we went to the Ashland Shakespeare Festival down in Southern Oregon, and the rest of the year, we had uh, tickets to the Seattle Opera. I was, this is not, a, I, I, I make quite clear, my father was a civil engineer, my mother was a homemaker, so this was like, instead of, you know, presents at Christmas, it was like, we go to the opera, and uh, in, I think the greatest of, you know, these sort of 19th century operas, which I was, was the cultural framework of my, uh, childhood and adolescence. It is that conflict between duty and personal inclination. And also the conflict between society or the state and the individual, uh, that is really the core core conflict, the core tension that drives the narrative. And I think that's true of my books as well. You know, I kind of, I am sort of as, as like the second child, I was like the dutiful one. And, and even now, you know, I can't even sit down to write unless, 
the kids are fed and off to school and the groceries are in the, you know, and the, the laundry has been folded and all this. I, I feel all these things that I owe to others. I feel like I need to do before I can do the thing that is my thing. And, and, and that sort of tension is, is really, you know, at the, that's at the micro level, that is at the me individual level, but you know, there, there is this larger sense, you know, in, in, in sort of larger world events of what do I do when my two loyalties are in conflict how do I resolve that conflict? Can't, is there any way that I can do this honorably and, and still be at peace with myself? And each one of these characters uh, in the book has to come to that point of deciding on which side they will fall uh, when their two loyalties are put to the absolute test. And, and, and yes, there is a very deep morality underpinning this. You know, I, I think that one of, I, I guess the sort of epitaph to the book is how people can do horrible things with the very best of intentions. That in fact, the worst things that we do are often with the very best of intentions. And, uh, you know, but, but how do we make things, how do we, how do we clean up the mess that we have made with these very, very good intentions? And, and that is really at the core, you know, and it's not like I sort of try to solve the problem necessarily. You know, I don't think any of the characters gets off scot-free in this at all. And uh, that's a little bit of life, but it's also, you know, there's a very, I, like I said, deep morality that sort of underpins all this. And uh, at the core of that is this sense that Anything that takes away the individual's ultimate sovereignty over himself and his own conscience, uh, you know, that is the thing that we are fighting against. You know, the, the, it, it, and obviously we all have a duty to society and the communities that we live in, uh, but society has a duty to us as well. And that is to not uh, try to impose on that inner sovereignty of the individual over his own conscience. And uh, there is much arguing back and forth in the book. Uh, and I, I try to make it a, a balanced argument because certainly we did not have perfect foresight in, in the 1930s or even in the 40s or 50s what, you know, this trajectory was going to take place in the Cold War. You know, we did not know about 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall. We didn't even know the Berlin Wall was going to be built. We didn't it wasn't as clear, you know, what, uh, you know, what the outcome here was going to be. Uh, and I try to keep that in mind, that there's a very powerful argument still in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s for communism, because we are not, it has not yet had its final, you know, do, we do not see what's going on yet in, in Eastern Europe, just the trickles of that. So I try to keep that fair. I try to really balance that argument. But in the end, I think, you know, I always have to come down on the side of, uh, the individual and, and the conscience of the individual and, and the, that, that is preserved, that that is sort of, uh, the thing which cannot be violated. The thing that is interesting, pivoting a little bit about this book is all of those are very deep, considerable thoughts that the reader has to have. It's like Sophie's choice or something yes, like yeah. that. Except it's not two children, it's <laughs> self and country and, and others. But in the book as well, um, you have a fair share of love, love, yeah. love making, falling in love. And I, 
So let me just tell you, when I read the book, I, I read the book, I came to the end, and I wanted to immediately read the first chapter again, because the first chapter is sort of the beginning of the end in a, in a, in a circular sort of, sort of way, um, without giving away anything. It's, I do that a lot with books. What I found in this book was I finished it, I went back, I read the first chapter, and then I read the second chapter, and then I reread the, the entire book uh, again. Um, That's a great compliment. Thank you. <laughs> well, because there was there were so many, you know, when you get when you're in a thriller, you sort of like I forget what it was in one one uh, maybe when Harry met Sally. Doesn't Billy Crystal like read the last page first because he doesn't want to yeah. go through the suspense of of the exactly. book? Whereas me, I'm just trying to rush through to see you know yeah, who lives it, who dies, which team wins, which team loses. Exactly. And now I can go back and read it again and say, ah, let's see the nuances. And then the um, falling in love parts of the book, I realized that you do something which is pretty wonderful, which is you give an emotional element to, to your characters, which I think is critical to, to human existence, which you don't see all that frequently in this sort of genre. So can you talk a little bit about I mean, it's not accidental. Nothing is accidental. It's it's in there um, for a purpose. But but talk a little bit about that in your yeah. writing. So, you know, and this is maybe where I'm drawing a bit from, you know, that the the literature and the uh, cultural experiences of my childhood, in which there always is an element of a love story. Why? Because that raises the stakes. It always raises the stakes if we love somebody passionately uh, because, you know, I think, and I can, it's in this book or another one of my books where I said, it's very hard to feel and think at the same time. So, you know, for us to navigate our way through this very complicated moral universe to add in that element of, of love, of romantic love uh, raises the stakes immeasurably. I, one of the things I love about, and I never shy away from putting uh, romantic love in my books, um, because I feel it is a great truth teller. Uh, I, I do not, when I put a sex scene in a book, it is because there is a specific thing that we need to learn about our characters that we can't learn any other way. Because sex is a moment of honesty. It is a moment when our true natures are exposed and where we expose ourselves to each other. So whenever I do put a sex scene in, and I hope I'm not sort of you know, putting, suppose there's two couples in this book uh, have, you know, have sex. One, it's much more detailed than the other. It's much more left to the imagination. And there's a reason for that. Um, because the couple that we see a lot more of what's going on with them in bed, it's, um, it's a much more complicated thing that is going on. And there's a lot more truth that's being revealed uh, at certainly in, in even various stages in their relationship, how this, how this takes place. So it's never gratuitous. And I think that, you know, if you're not adding that element in your books, you could be really missing a trick here because it is, we are always looking for ways to show 
who our characters are rather than the simple way of just telling. Uh, so going over love scenes and thinking, oh, this is just gratuitous. This is just here to titillate. It's not. It's there to tell you a truth. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss that. So I really appreciate your going through and, and, and giving that sort of the seriousness that I think it deserves because it used to get that kind of that level of seriousness. Yeah. Uh, it used to be taken a lot more seriously than it is. And at some point we decided this was just frivolous and emotional and sentimental and not worthy of serious attention. But it is. It tells us so much about ourselves. Well, and in fact, in, and I don't think this is a, a plot spoiler by any means. You tell me if it is, and if it is, we'll cut it out of the we'll audience. But, but um, in your uh, Russia, they have everybody being listened to. And mm-hmm. Ludmilla is receiving transcripts yes. all the time of conversations and, and, and movements and stuff. And she's given a transcript of two people who has made love and have been in, uh, have been together. And she's reading the transcript and she's thinking that this can't be real. And, and what she says is, it made me laugh out loud. She says why she thinks this can't be real. She says, what husband is possibly so attentive, attentive to his wife's needs and what wife is really so enthusiastic about the act of intercourse? Which I thought it was like a perfect... no, this must be a fake. <laughs> right, exactly. Because that's that's Ludmilla's world view. So this romantic scene not only tells us about the actors in that scene, but Ludmilla, the the listener of the transcript, saying, No, this this can't this can't be real. I don't need to credit it in my sort of investigation as a, as the cat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the, you know, I think one of the um, sort of elements I put in there is that, you know, obviously we're talking about, you know, 1952 here and and parts of the book even earlier uh, where, you know, and and clearly if you look at uh, Cold War fiction, certainly in that sort of earlier part, women are simply not taken that seriously at all. Uh, And as we know, uh, you know, they certainly have, they, they're certainly a lot more aware of what's going on than men realize. And they're seeing things that men aren't even seeing because we have, we have our own, you know, vision. And obviously men are seeing things that the women don't see, but, but we're seeing the, like, I'll give an example, you know, I'll try to keep it brief, but I was reading this agony column in uh, this British newspaper, uh, as you do. And uh, this wife was writing in saying, you know, my husband and my sister they are fighting all the time and they just, she brought her new boyfriend to dinner and he was insulting her in front of him. He says she's too shallow and she just cares about her looks. And what am I going to do? You know, my, my sister's upset. My mother's upset. The boyfriend's embarrassed. What do I do? And the, the guy, the agony uncle writes back and says, well, what you need to do, your husband, your sister need, you need to tell them, just go have lunch together. And, and, and they need to just start a clean slate and work things out for the good of the family. I'm like, Oh my God, Richard, it is completely plain to me that the sister and the husband have the hots for each other. Do not send them to lunch together. They're going to end up in bed. You know, it's clear that the reason he's squabbling with her is because he's jealous of the new boyfriend. You know, I see that with my female vision just like immediately, right? Uh, I don't think the agony uncle actually noticed that that is in fact what is going on. Uh, so, you know, we have our, we have our superpowers, uh, and I think that, um, those superpowers can be put, uh, to use in the context of Cold War 
fiction even, uh, which has always been this sort of boys playground. So I think that by inserting women into this world, uh, you know, by not taking seriously, that's actually a bit of a strength because you can do things uh, that people will not expect. I um, agree that this book written through the female point of view sheds a whole different light on what is the common literature of this period. And I wanted to ask you a question, which you don't have to answer. And if I have it wrong, you know, tell me that I, that I got it wrong. When I, when I saw the book, when it first came to my attention, our woman in Moscow, I thought, whoa, this is going to be great. It's like a gentleman in Moscow, the tolls book, which I really loved. And, and um, I, I said, I want to read this book. So I hadn't read you before I confess. Um, but this struck me as going to be a, a great read when I, when I got the, the, the sheets about it. And then after I um, read it, I said, in preparing for this conversation, I'm going to go look at the New York Times um, book review of this book. And I couldn't find a New York Times book review for any of my book uh, of this book. And, and, yeah. but I did find one for um, a gentleman in Moscow, in, the, in, in that review, they write of the author that he's a craftsman who chooses themes that run deeper than mere sociopolitical commentary. Those include parental duty, friendship, romance, the call of home. And I thought, that's what this book does. That's what your book does exactly. And I, do you have, is it just that you're a, a, a writer of of a, a, a book um, that is usually written by a man. I I can't I can't account for. I don't know that I want to account for it. But can you um, think about this with us a little bit? Because it makes you know, sense. I, to me. I think that I I don't necessarily think that it is a question of whether it's a female author or a male author. I don't think that's the root of the issue. It actually goes a little deeper. I think that. Women who write about women's things. And I think it goes back to, you know, and I'm not, you know, burning my bra over this or anything, but, you know, it's, I, I think that, um, women, or sorry, men, uh, or women or men who write about, uh, you know, men, there's this sort of universality, universality to the male experience. Uh, women writing about women's stuff that's kind of specific to women, and that's not necessarily something that the New York Times Book Review considers, uh, unless it's, you know, a massive bestseller, uh, bestselling author worthy of review, women writing about women's things. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if that is, you know, uh, is it a question of literary merit? I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and tell you that, you know, I, am either attempting to or succeeding in writing what is called literary fiction. Uh, my goal is to write a story that engages people emotionally as well as I hope intellectually, but also uh, at a level of simply turning pages, you know, and I think that what I think is a strength of my books is that you can read them quickly and say that was a really fun interesting read not too heavy or you can read them uh as something that has multiple layers 
And my favorite readers are the ones who sort of read those multiple layers, uh, you know, that are in there, uh, who pay attention to the sentences and the words and what is not being said and all of those things. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a difficult question. As soon as I talk about this with my agent, like, well, what, you know, do I, do I need to be doing something to be taken seriously by people like the New York Times book review? Um, but at the end of the day, I think I need to write books that uh, I feel are important to me and to my readers and to uh, what I feel is this arc of history of the 20th century, not about necessarily important events that are taking place, quote unquote, the big historical events, but about how human life changed from, say, 1900 to 1960 how we got from that capital R romanticism with which we started out the century and ended up, uh, you know, in postmodernism. And what was it like to live that experience as a human being in various parts of the world as all of these bits and pieces that form that arc, uh, that narrative arc, I guess, of that first half of the 20th century, you know, takes place. So all of my books fit somewhere along some section of arc uh, that is that trajectory. And, you know, my job is to, to just put those pieces in and to do that in such a way that engages me and engages my readers and gives them a sense for uh, how we got to where we are and what it was like to be on that journey in various places along along the path well the book is our woman in moscow it's a terrific read you can read it as a beach read or you can read it like i read it as a a deeply interesting historical novel about the human condition um not not just women writing about women's issue this is about the the human condition and the morality and the choices uh, that we make i know i will now go back and read Others of yours, I think I just ordered the last flight. Yes, Amelia Earhart is loosely, loosely inspired by Amelia Earhart. So, Beatrice Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. Very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. That said, is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Let us know your thought by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail dot com. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Zeldin. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.